future. Hopefully it's given you a little bit of the breath of God to run with endurance the race that is set before you. Hopefully there um, has given you a little clearer, a little more picture of Jesus Christ than you had before. That's the hope of what I think this book wants to accomplish in our lives and it's my hope for what it's accomplished in, in you as well. And so as we're, we're closing out, I'll give you the theme for the last time is Jesus is better, so don't turn back. Hold fast to your faith and press on to maturity. Jesus is better, so don't turn back. Hold fast to your faith, press on to maturity. And so we've been in chapter 13. This will be the final message there. In chapter 13, he, he, he combines a bunch of different commands to wrap up the book after the book has been predominantly teaching and unpacking scripture for us and then leading to these very pointed exhortations throughout the book at each major section, he's closing it with these scattering of commands. And these scattering of commands flow out of the end of chapter 12, which is offer to God acceptable to worship with reverence and with fear. And so, Chapter 13 is commands that are expressive of acceptable, pleasing worship to God. Chapter 13 are commands that if Jesus truly is as glorious and better as he's been presented throughout the book, then this is the way you live in light of that. And then this is the way you live if life is truly as hard as, it's, as the book says it is. If you face the hardship that the people in this book have faced, this is... This is how you live in community so that you're able to thrive and continue and endure through hardship. And so we, we looked at the first section, and it was about love, right? Acceptable worship is you love the people around you that are believers as if they were your real brother and sister, because they are your real brother and sister. That you love your marriages, that they are an honorable, valuable one of the most important things in your life, and you view it that way, and you view all of marriage that way, and you talk about marriage that way. And if you love those things, you won't fall in love with this thing called money. You won't let your hopes and your adoration fall. You won't let your mind dwell on this thing called money and the stuff that it can buy and the status that it can give you and and how much of it can you hoard and keep or how much of it can you spend to have the lifestyle that you can present to others that you want. You can't fall in love with money and people at the same time. You can't fall in love with Jesus and money at the same time. And so segment one dealt with our loves. Segment two that we started last week and we'll finish this week dealt with leadership. Right? And that there, there should be an evaluation of leadership to where you watch their lives enough to allow their lives to influence you. And if those lives are headed in the right direction, which is towards Christ, then you imitate people like that. Today we're going to see the kind of people you don't imitate. But if there's people, if there's leaders that speak the word of God, that's their authority, that's their content, that's their parameters, that's, that's their source, that's their only offering of hope. If, if the word of God is their primary instrument, then listen. And then if you consider the outcome of their life, like what is the trajectory of their life, and, and if it keeps going, what, what target will they hit? And, and will it hit closer to Jesus, then like let's imitate that. And if it won't hit closer to Jesus, then Let's don't. And I proposed a a pathway 
that is for every believer, not just elders and not just deacons, but for every believer. And that pathway was growth, like growth in holiness, growth in, your, growth in your relationship to Christ, growth in the expression of your relationship to Christ and the everyday stuff of life. All of us are called to that. All of us are called to walk and abide in Jesus and bear much fruit. All of us are called to obey all the things that he's commanded and so growth. But what is the natural overflow of growth? There are people that will be drawn to your life and there's people that will want your life to make a difference in their life and they will watch you and they will follow you and we call this influence. It's an informal thing where people gravitate and follow your life because there's something in it admirable. There's something in it that, that draws them. Growth leads to influence, and then influence leads to leadership. You take active responsibility for another person, active responsibility for their growth, active responsibility for their care, active responsibility to see them have more of Christ formed in them, and that's leadership. And then there is a very small fraction of people uh, that will become official leaders called elders or official leaders called deacons who exercise some authority over the church and that the congregation is meant to respond to with an outward sign of obeying, following, and an inward heart posture of submitting. Right? And so if you have leaders that like, there's Jesus, let's go towards him, then it only makes sense that you should obey leaders like that because that obedience takes you towards Jesus. But obedience is the outward expression. Submission is the inward expression. Right? And so that's what we looked at last week. Again, this week we're going we're gonna to see the other side. But we're going to close the, the book out. We're going to look at the other side of leadership that is a warning for us. And then we're going to look at the benediction. We're going to look at this prayer, which is this God-exalting prayer with exhortation mixed into it. And, and so that's how we're going to close it out. There's also some greetings and make sure we greet people and thank you for having patience with my letter and things like that. But those are the things we're going to focus on in our points today. So let's read. It's going to be uh, Hebrews 13, 18 through, through 25. So pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience Desiring to act honorably in all things, and I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you all the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. And I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, of, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings as well. Grace be with you all, or grace be with all of you. Let's pray. So, Father... As we look into the closing of this book, I pray this book would continually look into us. That Jesus would be magnified as our, our rest and he'd be magnified as our word, that living word that's active within us. He'd be magnified um, as a greater Moses. He would be magnified as the sacrifice that makes us whole and righteous. He'd be magnified as a priest who ministers and welcomes us into your presence. He'd be magnified.
And Father, as he is magnified, I pray we would love and follow people that love him. We'd, we'd love and point people to follow him. And Father, we would reorient the desires of our heart to what pleases him and not us. We pray that in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. So, uh, we have a great shepherd for our souls. We have a great shepherd for our souls. So, the first thing, reject unworthy leaders who distort scripture and minimize Christ. Reject unworthy leaders who distort scripture and minimize Christ. And so, there is kind of two sets of questions that we ask a lot. Like this first type of question we ask is we tend to ask questions that are like, how much can I get away with? Now, we don't phrase it that way because we understand that would be crass and that would be wrong and we don't mean that, but we do, right? So how much of this thing the Bible is saying is, is really needs to happen and how much can I get away with? Where, where's the line and how do I go up to it? And so we generally are asking questions about how can I get as much of what I want and as much of what I desire and still be good or okay or acceptable. Like Nobody knocks on my office door and he's like, I was reading this in the Bible and I'm just wondering, can I do more and be more holy than what the Bible says right here? Like, I, I would love it if like, you want to come and get some counseling and you're like, things are going awesome and this thing in the Bible, like, I love it, but I want to do more than what the Bible is saying right here. Should I do that or not? So if you do, knock on my door, it's always open. But most of us kind of go the other way. And so like, an example, right? Giving, well, that's in the Old Testament. The tithe is in the Old Testament. So, do I really have to? Like nobody's knocking on my door. Chris, the, the Old Testament says tithe. But I want to give away 25%. Do you think God would be okay with that? No, that's not usually the question, is it? Or, you know, a dating relationship, right? I, I see there's some boundaries here that are going to keep me from some dangerous stuff. But, you know, uh, how few of them can I, can, I, can I get in there? Or I think it's just going to work out because we have a basic commitment to not doing those things. Or, man, I want to have 25 boundaries for how to make sure we date purely. And so we tend to ask questions to where we can get what, as much of what we want and as much of what we desire without crossing the line. And you know, there is people, Christian leaders and Christian teachers, who know this about you and know this about me and they know this about human nature. So guess what they offer? Christianity that lets you have all the desires you want to have. Christianity that can approve of the kind of lifestyle you want to leave, the kind of sexuality you want to leave. We'll leave out the hard stuff about giving, or we'll leave out the hard stuff about dying to self, or we'll leave out the hard stuff about the cross, and we'll just make sure that as many of your desires as we can affirm, we'll affirm those. And you can see why a church like that would fill up pretty easily. A Christianity that gives me what I want, a Christianity where Jesus serves me instead of me serving Jesus, that sounds pretty good. That is, unless you know Jesus, and then it doesn't sound quite as good. Um, and so that's the first type of question that I, that I see us asking that can be exploited. The other side that I see, and it's probably more common for us, is we have really good advice and really good common sense and, and really good counsel, but we just don't have any Jesus in it. Just like you come to me and you have some financial problems, 
and I know how to make a budget. I even have a spreadsheet on my, my computer that is like fill in the blank budget and makes you think of every category you can possibly imagine. Let me give you a good budget and if you have a good budget and good, good financial principles then you'll live a good financial life and who's missing from the equation of your money? Because if where my treasure is, that's where my heart is also. I may need to talk about your treasures and your heart before I put a budget in place that expresses that. We offer really good advice without Jesus. We offer really good principles without Jesus. Really good rules without Jesus. And again, that's pretty easy to exploit. I'm going to give you a set of rules you can live by that will make your life better. And again, Jesus can serve you and you don't have to die to yourself to serve him. And so these are kind of the main like categories where I see us really really blowing it and and it's great for people who would like to twist scripture because they exploit that and that's how they connect to people and draw them in I have some really good rules which will make you a good person and you can do them and we're the good guys and they're the bad guys or I have a Christianity that doesn't worry about all that rule stuff and you can be good and accepted and live just how you want right now and God will love it so let's look at the text as we, as we jump in. So in verse, um, we're going to go back a few. Verse 9. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by food, which has benefited those devoted to him. And so that first statement there, like you, you kind of read through this section, which we did last week, and it sort of meanders, and it's almost like, how does that connect? Because at the beginning is, right, remember your leaders and, and imitate them, and at the end is obey your leaders and submit to them, and then there's this thing in the middle, and it's like, why is that there? And it kind of runs all over the place, and it doesn't quite seem to connect, but here's how it connects, is the primary governing principle that's unpacked through these verses is the first statement, do not be led astray through diverse and strange teachings. Right? So obey leaders and imitate them if their outcome of life is right. Submit to leaders. But this is the kind of leader and the kind of leadership and the kind of direction that you must reject and you must flee from. Do not be led astray by diverse and strange teachings. And so diverse, this is the general principle, and this is for all people at all times. He's going to unpack Hebrew-specific false teachings through the rest of the past, that section, but the general principle for all of us is there are diverse types of false teachings out there. There are no shortage. There's millions of doctrines and false religions and false beliefs and false teachers and cults and all of them have a shade of truth and they have a shade of things they're pressing on people, but they're strange to the scriptures. And I would say there are these two big categories that form either extreme end of a spectrum of false teaching and can already started with that. So, so side one what is your craving, or what is your desire when it comes to religion? And if you're honest with yourself, one of the great cravings is, I really want to work and earn some of it. I want to work because I feel good about myself if I work. I want to earn a little bit. Like, Jesus can be the 99%, and I just give the 1% to finish it off. But hey, look, I did something good. 
And then we get together with group of pe- groups of people that want to earn just a little of our salvation. We want to work and get a little bit. We just want to earn something from God where he owes us just a little. Now, we know we can't do the whole thing, but surely we can pay part of that debt ourselves through our service, through working hard, through ministry, through doing good works. And so we're going to just earn a little. And along come false teachers who know that about us, and they're like, great, I have a religious system just for you. We have rituals other denominations don't have. We have rituals other teachers don't have. We have ceremonies other religions don't have. We have ways of doing things that other religions don't have. And you know what? If you do them, you're good. And you know what's even better than being good? Is being better than other people. And so if you do it our way, and if you know what we know, and if you do the rituals we do, you're better than everybody else and you'll know it. And so there's this whole false teaching system. Some of it's super rigorous. Some of it is not as rigorous. But it's a man-made system of religion that involves our works, a standard we can complete, and a standard that makes us good. And so there's a whole category of religions, cults, false teachings that fall within religious systems that make you good because you do the things. And then on the other side, there is the... The, the side that we also are filled with cravings and lusts and desires. And if there is a Christianity or a religion that can affirm my lusts and desires, then I want that one. And so what do you want? I want to be comfortable. It's not so bad, is it? What do you want? Well, I want to be healthy. What do you want? Well, I want a couple of versions of sexuality to pick from. What do you want? Your natural desires and instincts. And there is a religion, a cult, or a false teaching that will affirm every one of those things. The most popular band of Christianity in the world is one that can guarantee you, you will have plenty of money. It's a Christianity that offers you greed is good. I'm not sure where that came from, but not the Bible. There's a Christianity that's like, hey, do Christianity our way, and you'll be healthy if you believe enough. So we always have that out of like, you just don't have enough faith that can crush the person who doesn't quite have enough faith, right? It offers you base desires. It offers what you want, and it twists Scripture in the process. Do you know what this text calls that? It's strange. Do you know what? If, if you have been here for a while, or if you've been in the Word for a while, and if you value the Word and you read through the Word, Hearing things like that immediately is like, that doesn't sound like the Bible. That is so foreign to what I read in the New Testament. That's so foreign to what I read in the Old Testament. That is so foreign to the Bible. It's so strange sounding. I couldn't possibly be led by that. But if you're not immersed in your scripture, if you don't have a community of people that are like showing you what is true and right as you wrestle with things, can you see how how? how you would be drawn to something that's Christian-like and embraces one of those philosophies. I want some of that stuff. I want my life to be comfortable. I want my life to be easy, and I want this problem-free. Hadn't had it yet, but I want it. Man, if you could just offer me that. And so, do not be led astray by diverse types of teachings that are foreign to the Scriptures. 
Now he's going to go into from there one that is particularly to the Hebrews, and it says it is better to be, or it's your heart should be strengthened by grace, not by foods which don't benefit the hearers. And so there is food probably is like a um, a ritual thing that they're attached to that includes the whole system. It's not just the meals and the ceremonies, but it's like the ritual of food, the ritual of festivals, the rituals of ceremonies, and so. There are people who practice a religion who say, if, if I do the right rituals and the right ceremonies and the right meals, my heart will be strengthened. My soul will be better off. And what does the text say? There is only one food for your soul that can possibly nourish it, possibly satisfy it, possibly strengthen it. It is the nourishment of the grace of God found in the cross of Christ. It is a Savior who lived and died and rose again who pours his grace upon you and lavishes his grace upon you and declares you righteous even though you're an enemy and unrighteous. And he, he, he puts his spirit in you and as he puts his spirit in you, he strengthens you to run the race with endurance. Like there is this grace that is food for your soul but involves a Savior who lived and died and rose again. There is a nourishment to your soul, and it's grace. It will never be the ritual of a religious activity. That won't benefit your soul a bit. And then he goes on and starts kind of tearing this, this, um, this false teaching apart that's, that's based on that. And he, he works his way kind of through the, uh, the Day of Atonement. Uh, as the background for that, and then he kind of gives these critiques, and so I want to give those before we move to the next. So we have an altar to eat from. That's the imagery he's using that the people who follow this system can't have. They have food and ceremonies that don't strengthen the soul, but you know what you have? You get to come to the altar of the cross of Christ where Jesus bled and died and rose again. And you get to feast on Jesus Christ sacrificed. And there is no right and there is no access for anybody outside of Christ to feast there. You have a meal in Jesus' cross that satisfies the soul and there's no access. There is no right to eat there. And then he goes through and he talks about how uh, the high priest would go in on the Day of Atonement and he would offer the blood of the sacrifice in the holy place, but then they would take the carcass of the animal outside of the, the camp, outside of the place, and they would burn it there. And so the holy people would do the holy stuff in the holy place and the leftovers would be thrown away outside the camp. And then along comes Jesus And where is Jesus crucified? Not in the middle of the large gathering where all the holy people are, outside the gate. And so the holy one was sacrificed in the unholy place so that unholy people could come and be sanctified and made holy through his sacrifice. And so do we want to desperately fit in with the people around us? Yes. Do we want to be approved by the wider body of Christianity? Yes. Do we yearn to fit in in the culture that we're surrounded by? Yes. But do we yearn more for Jesus? Because Jesus isn't found there. Jesus is found on the margins and the fringes as the rejected one outside the mainstream. And the call of the text is, go where he is. Don't follow a crowd that will lead you into something strange to the scriptures. Go where Jesus is. 
bear the reproach of Jesus, to identify with Jesus so that you're near to Jesus. Don't try to fit in with a system that's far from Jesus. And then, why would we do that, though? Because nothing here lasts. Nothing here lasts. The city here doesn't last, but we're headed to a city that lasts forever. There's a future hope that we identify. There's a future hope we walk to. There's a future hope that sustains us. And so, go to Jesus outside the gate who sanctified people through his own blood. Go to him and bear his reproach. We have no lasting city here. We seek the city that has come. And then what do we do then? Like, what is our ritual? What is our service? Well, look at the end. We offer acceptable worship. We offer the sacrifice of praise. What is the great sacrifice of our faith? What is it that we are supposed to do? We don't offer a sacrifice because a sacrifice has already been offered that takes care of everything. We praise the one who sacrificed himself and died on our behalf. We praise the one who lived and died and rose again. We praise a God who would form a plan of redemption knowing that his people would sin, knowing that they would rebel, knowing that they would break a relationship with him and then break everything that he'd made and yet he would become flesh, dwell among us, live, die, and rise again. And so praising God, lips that praise God, is the proper response to a sacrifice already made on our behalf instead of trying to make sacrifices or do self-righteousness or do works that would make us right with God. We praise the God who would make us right with him by his own sacrifice. And so do we have lips that praise God like they're actually been redeemed? Do we declare his praises as part of our prayer life because it is the natural overflow of seeing who he is and what he's like as we read the scriptures and as we think through the songs we sing? Do do we have to force ourselves to adore him in any way as we pray um, individually? It's like that the hardest part of your prayer time is like, what am I gonna say about God and what he's done? Kind of out of stuff. Thank you for forgiving me. Bless the food, Amen. Or does something flow out of your heart when you begin to think through, oh man, what about God is there to praise? And your heart starts flowing into that and it's almost like you forget you need anything at all because you have him. And then as we gather, and I'm not a singer, me neither. I had my mic on. I hope the good sound people muted me because like for the first half of one of the songs, I was like, my mic was on. Like, I'm an awful singer. And you know, people affirm that in me. I appreciate their encouragement. But do I, do I gather with God's people as one who's experienced the sacrifice of Jesus and like I've really experienced the sacrifice of Jesus, I sing the praises of Jesus, right? Lips that praise God, but lest you think we should go do a commune thing and like somebody with a guitar and long hair should lead us in worship all the time and we should just sing songs, there's something else in the text. Do not neglect to do good and share what you have with others. And what is that called? A sacrifice that pleases God. Do you see that? Offer the sacrifice of praise. Awesome. 
Offer the sacrifice of a life of good works towards other people and a life of generosity of other people, a life that cares about other people and expresses Jesus' life through us into their life. Offer that kind of life. And you know what God calls that? Worship. It is worship when you end praising God, get up and go into the world and find ways to bless and serve and love and do for other people. It's just as much an act of worship as singing the songs we've just sung. And so do we view our lives as how can I do active good to the people around me and how can I be generous to those in need as this is the way I serve God, this is the way I worship God. And then look at how it ends. This is what's pleasing to God. This is what's pleasing to God. Now I want you to hold that in mind because this is the second of three expressions of that word in this section. And I find it to be such a great reorienting question. Because most of the questions I ask in my life are this. What pleases me? How can I please myself? How can I get what I want? How can I make much of me? And in a good way, right? I'm Christian. And so I want good stuff. I'm not craving some bad sinful thing. I just want more stuff that makes Chris comfortable. I want more stuff that makes Chris good. How radically rewarding is a question. If in any circumstance, in any person, my question was not how does Chris please himself? How does Chris win? How does Chris look good? But my question over and over is, how do I make much of Jesus in this interaction? How do I please the Lord with how I respond to what's going on in my life no matter what is going on in my life? what pleases the Lord. And so, reject unworthy leaders who distort scripture and minimize Christ. The number one way you will always be able to tell if a teaching is false is what they do with Jesus Christ. Do they erase him completely? Do they erase him and make him look a lot like us? Do they erase him and make him serve us instead of us serve him? Do they erase him and say, you can do this on your own in Jesus' name? What do they do with Jesus Christ? It's going to be the central question. Second thing, pray that God may equip us with all we need to do his will and live for his glory. Pray that God may equip us with all we need to do his will and live for his glory. So, as many of you saw on Facebook, we have our first graduate this week. Praise the Lord. And she's actually going to play volleyball at a sister Sunbelt school. Not so much sister, but a Sunbelt school. And so we're kind of thinking, like, what's our list? What do we need to get together to make sure her, she's set up to go, like, live at college? Right? And then it comes to volleyball. Well, she gets her jersey provided. Doesn't need a jersey. She gets her practice shirt provided. Don't need a practice shirt. She gets her little spandex provided. Don't need that. She gets her socks provided. She gets her shoes provided. She gets her travel provided. She's going to be given coaches. So we don't have to provide that. She's going to be given a strength coach. We don't have to provide that. And on and on down the list. They take care of everything. What does she have to do even? Show up and give all her heart to playing the game. That's all she has to do. The team has provided her everything, has outfitted her with everything that's going to take to be successful. She just has to show up with all her heart to do it. God has outfitted you with his grace. 
God has outfitted you with his son who lived and died and rose again. God has outfitted you with forgiveness. God has outfitted you with mercy. God has outfitted you with his Holy Spirit living in you, making you a temple of his presence. God has outfitted you with a church. God has outfitted you with a set of relationships which are your community of strength. God has outfitted you with prayer. He's outfitted you with a sufficient Bible. He has outfitted you in every single way. So what do you have to do? Play the game with all your heart. And that's what this closing benediction does. It's like, God, give us, and you have, and give us in real time everything we need. And he does, so that you can do as well. And that's, the, that's what the text says. So what I'm going to ask you to do, something a little different, because this is different. I'm going to ask you to close your eyes for just a second. Every head, eye closed and every head bowed. No. But do please close your eyes with me for a second because I want us to just read this text and I want us to just feel this text because he's done with his teaching and he's done with his exhorting and he just wants to worship and express that. So now, may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. See, this is not so much a text to dissect. It is the closing statement that expresses his worship of God and expresses his desire for God to work in us and exhort us one last time. And so let's look at the, the text from that lens, the lens of worshipful expression of the truths as opposed to simple dissection of truths. And so now may the, the God of peace, and uh, likely this is interpreted the God who brings or the God who gives peace. Now if you've read through Philippians, it gets used both ways, right? May the peace of God rule our hearts, guard our hearts and minds, and do these things so that the God of peace may be with you. And so here, what, it could be either of those, but, but I think the proper way of, di- of understanding this would be the God who gives peace. Because he's about to go through all these statements of how does God give peace? And if I counted it right, there are eight God statements in, this, in these two verses. And there's only one us statement. So meaning there's eight things about God in this text And all of that surrounds this one thing that we're meant to do in response to it. And so there's this God who brings peace. How does this God bring peace? He brings peace through the blood of an eternal covenant. He brings peace through the death and resurrection of his son. How does God bring peace? By the sacrifice of his son, Jesus Christ. Who does God bring peace to? Really good people who deserve it. Nope. Kind of good people that sort of deserve it. No. Do you know how the Bible describes you and I apart from Jesus? Enemies of God, children of wrath, children of the devil, rebels, dead in sins and trespasses, really obsessed with our lusts and desires, following the world apart from him, and following Satan, the prince of the power of the air. That's the rousing description of you and I outside of Christ. 
but you're like I was just six when I came to Jesus. I was a little angel. My mom told me. Well, I'm sorry. I'm sure she told you the truth about everything but Santa Claus and angels. Because you're not one. <laughs> sorry if I burst any bubbles here. You should have sent your kids to children's church. <laughs> but those are the people God makes peace with. There is a reason that it took the death of Jesus Christ to make enemies children. Because we were enemies. We weren't good. There was nothing good in us. The, the best works we could ever do were filthy rags before the Lord. And if that's what's true, we need a Savior who died, not a Savior who gives us good advice. We need someone who died on our behalf to pay for our sins because we got so many of them. We are that. But it's not enough to have a dead Savior. We also need a living Savior because we keep on doing it and we need him to intercede on our behalf. The God who brings peace, that God, brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ. It takes a resurrection, not just a crucifixion. And then look how he describes him. Like if you were reading along in Hebrews, you would think he might fill in the word, right? The great word and revelation from God. Or you might think, He's going to put in there, oh, the great sacrifice on our behalf. Or he's going to put in there the great high priest who lets us draw near to the throne of grace. He spent chapters on Jesus as priest. But instead, do you know what he describes Jesus as? Well, you do because it's in front of you. The only time this word shows up in the book of Hebrews is right here. Because when he most wants to encapsulate Jesus' role in your life and my life, Jesus' role on behalf of his people, this is the only imagery that works for him. The great shepherd of the sheep. The one who takes his responsibility to protect his people. The one who takes his responsibility to provide for his people. The one who takes his responsibility to ensure they lack nothing in the area of righteousness and lack nothing they need for a God-glorifying life. And our favorite psalm, most favorite, famous psalm in all of scripture, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Jesus explaining multiple of his seven I am statements in one section. Do you know what he says? I am the good shepherd. Let me read a little bit of John 10 for you. The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And then in verse 14, I am the good shepherd again. I know my own and my own know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. You know what he also says? Like my sheep hear my voice and they follow me. The great shepherd of the sheep. The good shepherd who knows you. Knows you and calls you by name. Meaning he knows all about you. He doesn't just have sheep and know about sheep in general. He has you as a sheep. And he knows how to shepherd you to where he's taking you. And he knows how to shepherd us to where he's taking us. And he knows how to shepherd all of his people of all time. He knows you. You know him. He speaks through this book. And, and you can hear his voice. And Follow him. Peter got this as well as one of the elders and leaders of the early church. 
So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And then, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Why is the image of elder most often tied to the idea of shepherding people's souls? Because that's the image of the Jesus we serve and shepherd souls towards. There is a chief shepherd we're aiming at. And God gives us people to help us aim in the right direction. To the God who gives us peace by the death of our very own shepherd whose blood forms the new covenant or the eternal covenant, not the old one that passed away, but the new one that stays forever. What, can he, what, what do we want him to do? Equip us with everything good. All right, if you were going to go climb Mount Everest, now I don't know why you would, but some people do. And like, great. But like, they said it would take like $7,000 worth of gear to do it. You would have no clue what it would take to get that equipment at the right quality and the right specifications to go do it. And so it's like, can they, they, they hire people to help them outfit themselves with everything they need for a successful climb. God, will you outfit us to climb whatever we have to climb in this life that is pleasing to you, that is within your will? Everything we need, equip us with it. Don't just equip us with it in the past with the salvation of the blood of the new covenant. Don't just equip us with it in the past, God who brought us peace. Don't just equip us with it in the past, Jesus' resurrection, but actively apply the resurrection and actively apply the crucifixion to our lives over and over. What is our equipping? The gospel of Jesus Christ. Keep applying it to us, God, so that we have everything that's good, God. So why? So we can do your will. So we can ask ourselves, what is pleasing to the Lord in this moment and what nothing in me wants to do that, God, because my flesh wars against the spirit, but God, would you give me everything I need in this situation, in this response, in this circumstance, in this hardship to please you. Through Jesus Christ, work what's pleasing. Through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And so let me simplify the request this way. May the God of peace equip you with everything good to do his will. And the rest is motives and fleshing out and worship items that would make it more empowering for us. May the God of peace, who gave us the gospel, equip us with everything good in the gospel to do his will as an expression of the gospel. And you may be like, well, that dude's a legalist. I'm supposed to do the will of God? I'm supposed to obey? Don't you know that that obedience thing is out of date? And don't you know that obedience thing is legalistic and rigorous? Or don't you know that that that, that legalism thing, that really helps you out with God and he loves you more if you do a lot for him? Or here's what Jesus says five times, some version of this in the book of John. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, He it is that loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. What if there is a whole different way of obedience from the gospel? A deep overflowing love with Jesus 
that obeys Jesus as an expression of love, love-motivated obedience that results in a greater experience of Jesus. What if that is what is commanded of us? That we have been saved to fall in love with Jesus as the greatest treasure, and then we obey because it is the natural overflow of love, and then what do we get out of the deal? More Jesus. That's not legalism. That's Christianity. That there's one who won us and bought us to himself, who is ultimately and infinitely lovely. And because he is ultimately and infinitely lovely, it is a joy to follow and obey and serve and worship him. And the craving of our soul is more of him and less of us, so we war for it. We war for the spirit and a war against the flesh because we know the war results in a greater experience of Jesus and a greater joy in Jesus. And that is the basics of Christianity. And so we want to pray. What if that was our, our prayer for each other over and over again? What if that was our prayer for our microgroup? Like, God, you're so glorious. Fill in the blank because there's hundreds of things I want to say about you. But in this case, God, the God of peace, would you just do in my brother's life, do in my sister's life everything they need to do your will in, in what they're facing right now, to keep doing your will because it's really hard for them, to keep doing your will because sin has a stronghold, to keep doing your will, but there's suffering involved for the glory of your name alone. And so remember at the end of chapter 12, offer pleasing sacrifices. The word acceptable is pleasing there. Offer pleasing sacrifices. The end of the text we started with These are sacrifices that please the Lord. And then the end of this one, Jesus working in us what pleases the Lord. What if you change the fundamental operating question that you ask in every circumstance? What if you changed it from, what do you deserve? How do you win? What is your right to what pleases the Lord. And you just over and over, every time you just ask that question. And at first it's like weird or it's like legalistic or it's like some Christian ease type of statement until your heart gets reoriented to like, God, I really want to see with your eyes and feel with your heart and, and take up a cross and respond to you and I really want to know what pleases you in this instance because my flesh is all up in the way. I want to know what pleases you and how I'm going to speak to my wife right now. How I'm going to discipline my kids right now. I really want to know what pleases you when this person is talking bad about me. I really want to know what's pleasing you as, as me and this person are in, are in conflict. Because I want to see your eye with your eyes, not mine. A few practical things as we wrap up. What are some of the default ways we are tempted, or that you're tempted to minimize Christ in your own life? What are some of the default ways you're tempted to minimize Christ in your own life? Like, do you default towards self-righteousness? Like, I'm going to do good stuff, and I'm going to be righteous because of what I do. Do you default to trying to earn a love from God by doing enough for God instead of receiving the love that God has freely given? 
And you think that if I do enough, he'll love me. And if I don't do enough, he must not love me that day. Here's how it might look. Well, I didn't have my quiet time today. And so everything went wrong. I didn't have my quiet time this day. Thank God that there's a Savior who died on my behalf and I'm still righteous. He still loves me like a kid even though I didn't call him today. What if I operated that way, right? What are some ways that you default towards minimizing Christ? Maybe you live a guilt-based lifestyle and I'm always feeling guilty so I'm always trying to do more and I'm always feeling guilty and I'm always trying to pay back and I'm always feeling guilty so I just have to beat myself up a little bit. That doesn't magnify the, the sacrifice of Jesus and the grace of Jesus. Or maybe you default on the way, way other side and you're tempted to minimize Jesus by saying, like, I got the Jesus card. I can do whatever I want. Second, what are some ways you want to please self most? Right? What are the areas of your life where pleasing yourself is the most important pr- uh, principle involved? And probably it's a good thing. Probably it's a good thing that just has gotten elevated too high. Uh, and so there's a segment of your life, and it's like, here's the church side of my life, and here's the rest of my life. Right? And then the other side of that question, what are some of the areas of your life? Because we want you to encourage yourself. Like, what are the areas of your life where God's grown you to where it's like, I really do seek to please the Lord in these areas? Right? And then the last one, what has God given you or done for you that is worthy of celebrating? Right? If you find that the time of your prayer where you're adoring God is the hardest one to come up with, or if you find that you're kind of unmoved by singing the truths, or maybe you just kind of mouth the words, or maybe you don't sing at all, then it might be really good to have yourself a list that you're continually adding to because you're continually reading the word of like, here are things to celebrate about God. Here's praiseworthy things about God. Here's what God has done. God has given his spirit, made me holy, and made me a temple. God has forgiven me. God has redeemed me. God has created all of these beautiful sites to declare his Glory, and I get to soak those in. God has given me mercy when I don't deserve it. He is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He has adopted me from an enemy to a child, right? And he, he's given his spirit and his word. He's given me this church. Man, they are a bunch of messed up bozos, but they're my family, and I love them, and I'm so thankful for them, right? They show up and, and like put on random weddings, because they love each other and they, they put these showers together after a long day of church because they want to celebrate great things in your life. Wow, God, what a great gift. I want to praise you for that. And what if we just had good lists like that? We have a shepherd for our souls. Please don't ever follow one that would take you away from him. We have a great shepherd for our souls. He's taking us to life that is abundant. He's taking us to a future hope. Don't turn back. Press on with him. Let's pray. So Father, in Jesus' name, we thank you that there's one who loves us.